normally would take a few years to do this, but we are um, in this jet set age, we are supposed to talk about the entire history of India, yeah, the entire history of Kashmir in about an hour, hour and a half. We'll try to do our best. And in order to do this, I'm going to narrow it down a little bit for our audience and for um, our panelists. Recently, and I've been thinking about this a lot, and in fact, this morning also, um, I was telling before, um, you know, the panelists before, uh, I didn't sleep all night. We were watching, um, you know, what happened in India last night, um, you know, um, Bhumi Pujan of um, uh, Ram Mandir after 500 years of struggle. So it set me thinking it set me thinking about a basic question that we are going to try and answer through this webinar. Where does the history begin? Does it begin wherever it's convenient for us ideologically? Or do we go to the point where as academics and as I have such scholars do we go to the beginning of the beginning in order for people to make the make up their mind about history because history continues to be a battlefield not just in india but it continues to be a battlefield across the world and the reason for that is the basic reason for that is people don't know where history should begin in Hagia Sophia, where should the history begin? Should it begin where the temple was made? I mean, where um, the mosque was made? Should it be? Should it go back to where the cathedral was made, or should it go back to its pagan past? Nobody talks about the pagan past. Um, Amish often says that you know uh, people are fighting about between the mosque and um, a cathedral, and uh, but no one talks about the pagan uh, temple it was built on because there are no pagans left there. Simple thing, but there are a lot of pagans left in our part of the world. So we will talk about the pagan history um, and we'll go back to Kashmir and we will try to see that is Kashmir really a place where you see AK-47s and Klashenkovs? Is it a place where you see, um, is it a place that you see in um, old Hindi movies? Is it a place that you um, get your kesar and saffron from? Is it a home of Pashmina shawls? Kashmir is all this, but a lot more than that. In its bosom, Kashmir, the history of Kashmir, the valley of Kashmir has hidden many betrayals and has hidden many stories. We will try to uncover those betrayals across the history. We'll try to uncover those, you know, moments um, in our history. And also we'll try to connect one important part. This is not a political discussion, I must say it offset. And this is not at even though I am here, this is not a political discussion, nor is this a geopolitical discussion. We are putting it totally in a civilizational context. So for our young audience who often ask, what is there in this piece of land that we need, we are fighting so much about? Why are we every day we sacrifice our best and our best soldiers there, our best and our finest? 
what is there in Kashmir? Is it, is it just a piece of land or is it a strategically important place, which it is? Or is it because a so no sovereign country can give up a piece of land? Again, true. But then there is also a civilizational connect where Kashmir and India cannot exist without each other. So that civilizational connect is something that we are going to explore. I have wonderful panelists here, those who need no introduction. Um, joining us from India is Mr. Virendra Kazi. He's a Kashmiri Pandit with the deep exposure to culture and spirituality of Kashmir. He joined public sector after completing his education. He presents the classical traditional wisdom and practice of Kashmir Shaivism, something you must have heard. His first passion was mystic Shaiv Yogini Laleshwari or Lala. Her works or sayings convey the essence of Shaiva Agamas in Kashmir Shaivism. The main focus is on the sadhana aspect so that we get spiritual transformation. Kashmir Shaivism is based on the ancient wisdom of Agamas, Tantra. It's a universal spirituality which opens the inner door to self-realization. Besides guiding us for, the, for harmonious material life, it takes us to the highest level of divine realization. From Mr. Virendraji, when I come to him, I would like to know from him how and you know Kashmir Shaivism came about in India and then how does it connect to sh various roots and shoots across India. So I will come to him in a little bit, but before that I must um, introduce my other very eminent panelist, Dr. Subhash Kaur, who absolutely needs no introduction, um, but I must still, um, I don't get paid for this, but I still have to do this. Um, Subhash Kak is an Indian-American computer scientist who has made major contributions to cryptography, artificial neural networks, and is recognized as one of the pioneers of quantum computing. Dr. Kak has published on history of science, the philosophy of science, ancient astronomy, and the history of mathematics. He's the author of 20 books, some of which have been translated into French, German, Italian, Spanish, Korean, and Serbian. As a philosopher, the reason he is here today, Subhashi maintains that a fundamental subject-object dichotomy makes it possible for science only to deal with objects and not with perceiving subject, and therefore it's impossible to create a formal science of um, consciousness. His announcement of an astronomy of the Vedic period in his book, The Astronomical Code of Rig Veda, challenged academic views related to Aryan invasion and the nature of early Indian science. He co-authored the seminal work In Search of Cradle of Civilization in 1995, which participates in the debate and polemics on the origin of Indian culture. So with such eminent panel, I really don't need to do anything and to move on to my panel, I am going to go to Dr. Kark first. Dr. Kark, I would, my first, uh, as an introductory remark, uh, you know, if you would first speak for about 10, between 10 and 15 minutes, if you would give us a broad framework of where history begins in Kashmir, the history that we don't often see in, on our news channels and in our textbooks, where does history begin? And give us a brief sense of who Kashmiri Pandits 
really are apart from this um, um, you know people who are who were driven away in 1989-90 and that's our most um, visible identity right now try to give us a sense of who we really are over to you dr garg Um, th <laughs> thank you, thank you, Sunanda ji, and uh, thank you, Indian Academy, to uh, have given me this opportunity to speak on this uh, very important uh, issue of uh, where Kashmir fits into the larger Indian civilizational puzzle. Now, there are different ways of looking at it. Of course, we have textual evidence, and we have archaeological evidence, then we have travelers who came to India and spoke about its history. And I'll just pick on one of those. When the Greeks came to India after Alexander, they wrote about Indian history and they said, uh, it goes back to, if one were to use BCE, it goes back to 6676 BCE. Now there is one Indian calendar, which is connected to that. That is the Kashmiri Saptarshi calendar, which has a current beginning of 30, 3076 BC, if you add another 3600 years, it does square with the 6676 BCE that the uh, Greeks uh, wrote that Indians thought their history went as far as that and that Indians had king lists which, which went that far. So this is, you know, chronological time span. Now, as to who the Kashmiris are, modern Kashmiri language is probably a thousand or fifteen hundred years old, but we can estimate from a lot of other evidence that uh, the language, which uh, was quite uh, uh, significant, both in uh, Northwest India and even beyond, and I'll come to that in a minute, uh, which had uh, features which are similar to Kashmiri language. Uh, is called Gandhari. Gandhari was just beyond the borders of Kashmir Valley. And uh, it has uh, features which are called Dardic language features, which Kashmiri has, and which also uh, the Kalash language, the Kalash are uh, a group in Pakistan and Afghanistan, which still are holding on to their old uh, Vedic culture. So their language also has the same features. Now, what's interesting is that until about 1006 uh, CE, uh, which is about 1000 years ago, Xinjiang, uh, north of Kashmir, also used Gandhari. And there was tremendous connection between Kashmiri scholars and scholars in Khotan and Kashgar and all the uh, city names, and of course their language, they also used Sanskrit. Where Sanskritic, for example, Kashgar was Kashigiri, the, the hill of light, and Khotan was Gosthan, which is now called Hotan. And uh, this is where an interaction between Kashmiri scholars um, and uh, their journeys into uh, Khotan and uh, Xinjiang led to the development also of the classical Chinese civilization, because that's where Kashmiri scholars went, translated Sanskrit texts, which led to uh, Chinese Mahayana having the form that it has, which was somewhat different from uh, what uh, was given to it 
uh, in India at that time. So it assumed features which uh, are sort of similar to Vedantic features that we are very familiar with, for example, in uh, Kashmir Shaivism. So this is the general uh, fact, which uh, some people don't know about uh, the twin of Kashmir beyond their borders, which of course right now has a very significant geopolitical implications. Now, of course, we do know that after 1006 CE, Xinjiang was Turkified. They lost their old Indic languages and now their languages are Turkic, just as Turkey, modern Turkey, used to be the cradle of uh, uh, Greek civilization, Ionia, which is Western Turkey. And that also got Turkified and now in Turkey, the language that is generally spoken is the Turkish language. So this is the general uh, overview in terms of uh, the reach of Kashmir, uh, not just uh, within and uh, participating in the creation of what we know as classical Indian civilization through a whole series of contributions going back to grammar, Mahabhashya, Patanjali, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the two Patanjalis are supposed to be the same individual uh, in the Indian tradition. Uh, the beginnings of art theory as in um, Vishnu Dharmottar Puran, um, also um, uh, aesthetics, Indian uh, Kashmiri sculpture and uh, painting, which after Kashmir fell on hard times, went uh, in different directions, including went down to the Pahari areas, Himachal and the hills, and created uh, the magnificent Pahari style of painting. And, and, and also, uh, this is something that we'll be coming back to very quickly, uh, the pinnacle of uh, the philosophy of consciousness, which is uh, Kashmir Shaivism, which, uh, which poses this whole problem of awareness and who we are and where consciousness comes in in, in such beautifully scientific terms that even now uh, some of the leading minds in the world who are interested in this frontier area of science. It's, it's a frontier area of science, not only from the perspective of computer science, because you're trying to construct a machine which has consciousness, because normally machines don't have, but the brain machine is conscious, and also in neuroscience. So all these uh, topics are leading up to the question of what is consciousness. And in Kashmir, about 13, 1400 years ago, this whole philosophical framework of Kashmir Shaivism, because Shiva or Ishvara is consciousness within you, it's one, and it gets expressed uh, in different people who think that they are different, but they really are the same. This is the general framework uh, uh, that there is. Now, I also want to mention uh, uh, quickly that uh, there were contributions uh, that Kashmiri scholars also made to literature, to music. Everybody knows about Shang Dev. Uh, and, uh, and, and the great Abhinav Gupta, who also wrote a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, a very famous commentary. And he also wrote uh, the great classic of Tantra, which is Tantra Loka. The great uh, book on aesthetics called Dhvanya Loka. What is Dhvani? How do you recognize what is beautiful? So some of the most subtle questions of not just Indian philosophy, but universal world philosophy, were a part of the, um, of the discussions that uh, went on. 
And uh, Abhinav Gupta, who lived about a thousand years ago, we have uh, stories on how these meetings took place. And apparently they were both men and women uh, who participate in these discussions. And uh, so it is a very egalitarian and open society. And um, uh, just to, um, to, to conclude, I must also say uh, that um, scholars of art have suggested that a lot of what is seen as Oriental art, the beginnings of it perhaps took place in Kashmir and from Kashmir, just as philosophy went from Kashmir to Xinjiang and from Xinjiang eastwards to Chang'an, which was the capital of China at that time, and then onwards to uh, Japan. For example, Dhyan itself, Dhyan as meditation, when, when it went to China, it became Chan. And when it crossed across the sea to Japan, it became Zen. So there's a lot of stuff in every field that you can think of from medicine, to literature, to music, to sculpture, to aesthetics, to philosophy, to mathematics itself, the Bakshali manuscript uh, just across the valley, but it was the same uh, circle. And, and then scripts went from Kashmir to Central Asia and from there on to Korea and Japan. So truly, uh, it was not that it was all being created in Kashmir because Kashmir was connected to the rest of India. It was really one civilizational area. There were also intriguing connections between the two furthest corners of India, Tamil Nadu, Shaiva Darshan there, and uh, the Shaiva Darshan in Kashmir. So there were these Agamas in these two regions which are connected. There are also connections between the East, uh, Bihar and Bengal and Kashmir, the whole Shakta thing, or Sridhidya, which is very popular all over India, is uh, according to scholars, it emerged in Kashmir and went uh, elsewhere because it's a representation of these uh, beautiful insights that we have of consciousness that emerged in Kashmir. So I'll just stop here and uh, we'll come back to some of these threads later on. Thank you, uh, Sunandaji. Wonderful, wonderful. You gave us a, uh, you know, um, a framework on uh, where we can begin our conversation from. And from what you said, I was always under the impression that Kashmir is the cradle of Indian civilization. But what you said, it seems to me that the Kashmir, that Kashmir is cradle of world civilization. I mean, a lot of stuff came from Kashmir, and I'm not just, um, uh, you know, the lot of material that came from Kashmir and went to ancient civilizations, uh, as you mentioned, um, is, is something that I, I believe a lot more um, research could be done on. Welcome, Vrindraji. Um, my, um, you know, you are an expert, a world-known expert of Kashmir Shaivism, and um, Professor Kark already referred to it. So if you can focus a bit on Kashmir Shaivism, tell us what it really is, what is the school of thought that we know about, and where, how was it connected with rest of India, as in what are the schools of thoughts that emerged from Kashmir Shaivism, making it... A, you know, a sort of a continuous, um, you know, uh, if you would say, um, stream of education or stream of uh, understanding our own selves. Um, so over to you, Virendraji. 
ओम नमः शिवाय सो थैंक्स इंडिक एकेडमी फॉर दिस ग्रेट अपॉर्चुनिटी एंड दिस थैंक्स नरेंद्र जी सुभाष जी हैज गिवन अ लॉट ऑफ इंफॉर्मेशन अबाउट कश्मीर्स कंट्रीब्यूशन एंड इंटरेक्शन विद द रेस्ट ऑफ वर्ल्ड my most of my friends would have read shiv puran lord shiva says whenever there is adharm whenever people are in trouble i take the human form just to relieve the sufferings of the world similarly lord krishna says in bhagavad gita popular yada yada hi dharmasya now let me give a I have you know born and brought up in Kashmir. Give a Urdu touch to this Yada Yada Hi Dharmasya. I will translate it into into Urdu. Uh, please remember the word Tanazul. Tanazul means decline. They say Tanazul par jis waqt aata hai dharm. Tanazul par jis waqt aata hai dharm. Adharm aake karta hai bazaar gharm. Aur ye andera jab dekh paata hu main, to insa ki surat mein aata hu main. This Lord Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita. I will translate it also. My friends have not followed it fully. Now, how Kashmir Shaivism was either originated or born in Kaljuga? They say after this Satyuga Tapatritya, the great masters went in hiding of Agamas. They went into hiding. and lord shiva wanted to enlighten the world and our guru sage durvasa rishi he initiated sage durvasa rishi in kalash mountain lord shiva assumed the form of shrikantanatha and initiated sage durvasa rishi in shivagamas and then shrikantanatha disappeared now say durvasa rishi wanted to impart the knowledge that he was ordained to enlighten the world impart this to deserving people he could find no worthy disciple so he was worried he could not find a worthy disciple to impart the knowledge so he created manasputra mind born son trimbakanatha and uh, imparted him with the knowledge of shivagamas it was not done through writing it was done at the pashanti level mental to mental level he will just initiate him and he also created ardhatrambaka a female mind born daughter please remember in agamas we give more importance to the female learning i mean they are no less than men in any case so they say 15 uh, disciples were created through this mind born son and the 15th one he was not that capable so he was advised to marry so he had a son then from father to son this knowledge was spread and uh, then sangam ditya was one of the disciples he came to kashmir and settled in kashmir so this is uh, the background from says durvasa then what happened in 8th century 8th century there was a great shaiva saint vasugupta and they say he was one day uh, not well uh, he was rather dishonored by one nagabodhi he was a buddhist saint in 8th century even he felt jealous of vasugupta because 
people while praising Vaskupta. And he said, why they are, what is it he's up to? And he was rather not, uh, he was rather insulted. They say Vaskupta went back to home, slept, disappointed. He said, oh, Lord Shiva, they did not allow me to talk. And night came Lord Shiva in his dream. They said, go to Mahadev mountain, find Shusutras and enlighten the world. In morning with his disciples, he goes to Mahadev mountain. It's actually just near Srinagar, uh, called the Dachigam Forest Reserve. That's the Mahadev mountain. This or a stream, there was a big boulder. It is called Shankar Pal. And by just touching it, it overturned and Shu Sutras were revealed. What are the Shu Sutras? Those are the three levels of self-realization, which I will again not elaborate. This is the beginning of 8th century revival in, of Kashmir Shaivism. Then his disciples were one of the very important lineage was Utpal Deva, who created the proper Pratipigya Darshan, the doctrine of recognition was done by Utpal Deva. Then very illustrious scholar was Acharya Abhinogupta. Subhaji also mentioned his about not only Shaivism, Tantra, aesthetics, Nati Shastra. He, this was almost incarnation of Lord Shiva. He compiled all the Tantras and wrote Tantra Loka. Then he wrote wonderful commentaries on the most subtle texts like Paratramishka, Malani Tantra, and Shu uh, Sutra Vimarshini. Lot of things he did, uh, Acharya Manogup, but uh, there was a modern interpretation of Shaiva literature. Then there were other scholars, and let me mention Swami Lakmanju Maharaj. Swami Lakmanju was uh, the last great master of Kashmir Shaivism, and uh, he conveyed the lineage. He Connect the living and scholars all over the world learn at his feet. That is the history of Swami uh, Lakmanju. And uh, you know, friends, we just discussed. Uh, my people ask me, what is this Shaivism? What is Kashmir Shaivism? <coughs> As Subhaji also mentioned about Tamil Nadu and uh, and Kashmir, you know, Shaivagma Tantras. Let me, my friends, I will tell you there are. There are variety of Shaivisms. I will uh, categorize four broad, it's very important to know, there are four broad category of Shaivism. Four broad categories are, two are basically, one is from Tamil Nadu and second from Karnataka. The Tamil Nadu is a very, very old called Shaiva Siddhanta. Shaiva Siddhanta is spread to Tamil Nadu, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Indonesia, you know, it's also very ancient. And you know, must have heard they are incorporating Shiva Puran. It's based on the nine Mars, the saints, life of the saints. And you know, like you know, Shikari, how the hunter, you know, the bear petrified, he got enlightened, sadhana, penance. And in fact, uh, whenever Dr. Karan Singh meets me, he always tells me, please, in North, people are not aware of Shaiva Siddhanta. You must tell people in North India about Shaiva Siddhanta also. Shaiva Siddhanta is very close to Kashmir Shaivism. In fact, it has the same agamas, same 36 tattvas, which we uh, discuss in uh, Kashmir Shaivism. Same is in Shaiva Siddhanta also. Only thing is, differences because Kashmir Shaivism is strictly otherwise. We are just part of Lord Shiva, nothing below that. Absolutely divine Lord Shiva. But Shaiva Siddhanta is dualistic tantra. It's based on dualist tantra, means Pashu and Pati, a bonded soul and the Lord Shiva is, a, is our master. 
This is about Shavasiddhanta. In fact, uh, Shu Subramaniam Swami, the great saint in Hawaii, he is, follows uh, uh, this uh, Shavasiddhanta tradition. In fact, his guru was from Sri Lanka. I used to have some conversation with him whenever I was in America. Now he's no more. Second Shaivism is Veer Shaiva or Lingayat in Karnataka. It was the founder was King Baswa, Baswishikeshir. And it was basically a reformist movement because people would always uh, indulge in rituals, uh, betray people also, and not have the essence of spirituality. So Braswa was a reformist movement. He created what we call it Basveshwar uh, Darshan called Baswa Six Vachanas, Six Basic Principles. And also my interaction with great uh, this, uh, Lingayat scholars, they, have the, they also have a close relation with Kashmir Shaivism. This uh, Lingayat, they have got to call it Lingodhar Diksha, Shivaling. And it is also from Tantra Lok, it's an elaborate ritual of Lingodhar Diksha. So it also has a link with uh, Kashmir Shaivism. Now, coming back to two Shaivisms Shaivism based on Vedanta is Shankaracharya, Advaita Shaivism of Shankaracharya, which are Bhashas, Tikas, everybody knows about it. And Shaivism based on Agamas, we call it revelation texts, also called Tantra, is Kashmir Shaivism. In fact, uh, it's a big subject, a lot of discussion, you know, there are also, uh, it is strictly monoistic. There is also dualistic tantra, like Netra Tantra, then uh, what we call Lokakshi Tantra and uh, Lokakshi Pashupa Tantra, you know, that is, which is popular in Gujarat also, that's called Veda Ved Tantra. So these are all, of, uh, all varieties. Essentially, Kashmir Shaivism is based on Agama, strictly a tantra. Now, some people also ask me, why Kashmir Shaivism? Why it's called Kashmir Shaivism? Why word Kashmir Shaivism? I want to give this basic knowledge. Because basically, you know, nowhere I find in any grant it is written Kashmir Shaivism. It's a Trikha Darshan, Pratibhigya Darshan. Basically, when uh, Maharaja Pratap Singh, he invited Jagdish Chandar Chatterjee, a scholar from Bengal, that uh, it was the order of Swami Ram was a great mystic and great scholar of Kashmir. He was Paramaguru of Swami Lakhmanju. He told Pratap Singh that the problem we have, you, he said, what, uh, sir, what help I can do, what seva I can do. He said, there are scriptures, sir, you know, that some leaves, legs lying with some scholar, something with some scholar. Why don't you compile it? It's very, very important. So he did a great work. Jagdish Chandra Chatterjee, a director of Maharaja's archives of Sanskrit texts, uh, assisted by two great pandits, Bakundram Shastri and Madhusudan Kohl. They compiled Tantra Loka and all these Granthas were compiled and printed. And because of, he called it Kashmir Shaivism. Now what has happened worldwide, because I was just wondering, you know, can we call it universal Shaivism? Worldwide is known as a Kashmir Shaivism only because mostly our foreign friends, they call it Siddhi Yoga, Kashmir Shaivism. It was propagated by Swami Mukhanandaji. He did also great uh, work in spreading Kashmir Shaivism because he adopted Kashmir Shaivism as a spiritual creed. So this is also the answer that people are asking why it's called Kashmir Shaivism. Now, <clears throat> what is Kashmir Shaivism? As I said, it is based on Arkhamas. Kashmir Shaivism is a universal spiritual philosophy which focuses on Supreme unity of the self with the God. 
it accepts all the aspects of life and teaches the path of realization based on divine grace so that is number one it is a universal spiritual philosophy it's beyond caste creed color i mean anybody can adopt it and that's always we say the divine grace is all over the world there are masters lord shiva has produced all over the world i give the examples it's a universal spiritual philosophy secondly it emphasizes on the supreme unity of the self with the god what is the supreme unity supreme unity as you said it is a strict advaita where absolutely no less than the god in fact i was just uh, explaining the great iqbal the islamic poet of iqbal you know he also spoke of advaita I mean, everybody who knows about this khudi ko kar buland itna ki har takdeer se pehle khuda bande se khud puche bata teri raza kya hai then when he goes in this just pure advaita nothing but pure advaita and he goes in the mystic trance he says oh god we are you and me are one only you and me are one only and now you know they say that on the day of judgment will god will ask you what are your plus and minus points how can you judge me you are not different from me why should you judge me he says it's a beautiful thing uh, i have to stop you here um virendra ji thank you so much for giving us that broad thing and i'm going to come back to you um for question answer so i should cover and that I'm other topic to... also you know the kashmir contribution with others ha huh? mm-hmm. yes and we'll come back to that in question answers okay. very good very good done, what you have done right now you have given us a sense that kashmir shaivism even though it originated in kashmir it was not something that stayed in kashmir it was it went around and it influenced scholars from everywhere and that's what that's an important point that needed to come so what is happening in last 35 40 minutes on this in this conversation is actually very detrimental to a lot of my friends who are on the left hand of the political spectrum because right now what both you gentlemen wonderful gentlemen are trying to say is that there was a time in kashmir when um, they were not fighting rest of the male and india and they were actually contributing and in a very scholarly way so that's what you have uh, sort of established in um, last um, you know in last 40 minutes or so and which we always knew um, that the history of kashmir does not begin in 1947 it goes really way far back and it's not just a piece of land that we must say it's also um, a piece of civilization that we must um, you know guard because this is what we own um, ultimately this is what we have now i would like to introduce um, shri harikiran vadlamani ji i have known him for a long long time i like to call him the uh, modern godfather of indic thought in india because he has is as an entrepreneur as a scholar himself and as someone who has put these platforms together and i have known him for a long time and i have seen him from the time when he was putting these motley groups together across india and united states he had the vision he had the vision that you know we can have a platform where we can talk about our own uh, we can talk about ourselves and we can relate our own stories where we can narrate our own stories so this is this his vision and as i said i call him the godfather and um uh, harikrishna you can take it away from here 
you have an announcement to make, I believe. And um, uh, after you say good things about us, you can take it away from us. <laughs> there, I gave you a hint. <laughs> As always, you're extraordinarily... <laughs> all your praise and words. And uh, thank you so much for those uh, kind words. And uh, fascinating uh, uh, conversation. Uh, uh, of course, ex uh, 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 extraordinarily conducted by you. And uh, Virendraji and Subhash Karji, uh, thank you very much for that uh, uh, conversation. I personally uh, gained immensely from that. I, uh, I just have three uh, uh, messages uh, today, one, uh, two on scholarships and one on uh, Vigraha in uh, Kashmir. So I'll just share my screen uh, just for Is my screen visible? Yes, now it is. Okay. Uh, there is a scholar by the name Walter Sleje. Can you see that? Uh, yes. Yes, okay. So there is a book written called The Brahma's Curse, Facets of Political and Social Violence in Pre-Modern Kashmir. The present book deals with Kashmir and some of its largely neglected social and political conditions of the past, including the Islamization of the valley, in the early modern period. In the last decades, research on Kashmir focused essentially on textual sources of chiefly the religious and philosophical genres, social misery, disasters, violence, famines, epidemics, and wars, which perpetually ravaged the country during its long and well-documented history, but largely, if not entirely, ignored by the academic studies of the above orientation. The resulting lopsided representation of Kashmir increased the romantic image inherited from the Mughals and contributed to the construction of the myth of an idyllic world in a glorious Hindu past before the advent of Islam. The two chapters making of this booklet, trying to put the pictures of the pre-modern realities of life in Kashmir somewhat into perspective. The first chapter focuses on the centuries-old stereotype of Kashmir as a happy valley. Particular attention is devoted to the prevailing cliche of the Brahmin class as a non-violent and pacifist. The second chapter deals with different notions of idol, murti from Hindu, Buddhist, and Abrahamic religions viewpoints, as well as with contrasting perceptions of the destruction of an idol by an iconoclast and his victims. Historic evidence of idol smashing in Kashmir in the pre-Islamic and Islamic periods will be analyzed and presented together with the rationale of iconoclasm as maintained and debated by the Hindu and Muslim parties at the time. The chapter ends with the exposition of the sophisticated methods of desecrating Hindu and Buddhist sanctuaries in order to make them inoperative for all future. The title of this book refers to an old and widespread belief among Hindu Kashmiris that they had fallen under the curse by Brahma, a curse in which they see all their sufferings rooted. Um, so when I saw this, uh, it just, uh, I mean, it, it didn't, he is a scholar and uh, so there's, Somehow it just uh, looked, didn't uh, sound right to me. So I got a copy of this book. It's some 40 euros. It took me a long, long time to get it. Very few copies are there. So I have a copy of this book. I am at this point in time, of course, Subhash Kakji and uh, Virendraji can give a comment uh, broadly about that, uh, that content that is out there. But my appeal to the audience who are listening, and if there are any scholars, I would uh, be glad to courier this book to you uh, or uh, ship it to you, and I would be happy if a, a proper 
scholarly response is given to this uh, book uh, because uh, intuitively it, it doesn't sound uh, right and it looks like a, an ideological approach uh, what we have seen of Indologists, uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to create. So this prima facie has that Indological uh, bias towards Kashmir in the pre-Islamic period, uh, trying to create a, a sort of an environment of, of violence. So my appeal to people who are watching, uh, any friends that you know, to uh, please re reach out to us at namaste at indica.org.in. We will ship this book to you. We would request you, we'll give you a short-term fellowship to read the book, look at the references, look at the interpretation and see uh, the validity of this, uh, this, uh, uh, this, this book itself. This is my first message. My uh, second message is Can you see the screen? Yes. Yeah. So the second message is we have already announced a guided research and book writing fellowships on Kashmir. Broadly, three areas we would like Shankara, Advaita, and Kashmir, Abhinav Gupta's influence beyond Kashmir, Tirthas and Shetras of Jammu, Kashmir, and Ladakh. So we had announced this last year. We have already granted uh, to three scholars, but this is such a vast topic. This is such a uh, really fascinating topic. I would invite all the scholars who are watching, all the friends of uh, scholars who are watching to reach out to us again and write to us. We would be most happy to grant more scholarships to explore these very, very important areas. And the last message Did you see the screen? Yes. So on August 5th last year, when 370 uh, was uh, abrogated, uh, we have uh, announced this. We have taken a sankalpam to install 108 vigrahas, three feet vigrahas of Adi Shankaracharya around the world. We have already done five such uh, vigrahas. Sorry. I don't know. Yeah, so we have, we have done five such vigrahas so far. We have a mission to uh, uh, install uh, 108 across uh, uh, India. And uh, so, uh, so this, this we, have, we made this announcement last year that uh, we now look forward to installing one in Kashmir. This is the land where uh, uh, Adi Shankara Bhagavad Pada wrote uh, about transcending duality and singleness. We need to see that. And uh, therefore, my appeal to all of you is to take a collective sankalpam that uh, one day that this is all should happen in Kashmir Valley. So with that, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Hari Karanji. We have a very esteemed guest here and um, Shastri Yanamandraji. He is the grandson of uh, Pandit Kota Venkatachalam. 
and um, he has been very close to works of Panditji and has been trying to bring Panditji's uh, body of work into the mainstream of Indic studies for some time now. He feels that Panditji's work in reconstructing Indic chronolo chronology coupled with the social, economic, cultural and political dimensions could provide the basis for the development of the grand, one grand narrative that we are all in search of. Um, so I um, uh, do not see him. I know he's listening to us, but Shastriji, if you, can you hear me? Yeah, there he is. Yes, um, yes. Thank you, Shastriji, um, for appearing on our screens. And uh, Thank you, thank you. That was yeah, a very generous so introduction. Uh, thank you, uh, Indic Academy, for this opportunity. Uh, thank you to the distinguished panelists. It's a privilege to share the stage with you. Uh, I wanted to ask a simple question. Uh, most people in India relate to um, big stories like the Mahabharata, big historical figures like Adi Shankaracharya, and you have mentioned a couple of those. Uh, over the millennia, could you please show some connections over time, let's say from the Mahabharata days or, or uh, uh, after that in the uh, medieval ages, maybe uh, towards Adi Shankara as well. This would help uh, um, un people understand the civilizational continuity and integrity over the millennia. Um, Dr. Kak, before you begin, I just want to give one house rule before you come in the answers. All our um, uh, listeners and viewers, I believe we have a lot of them here. Uh, at this point, you can begin typing your questions and uh, the team at Indic Academy is going to curate those questions and we will try to answer every question that we get. So at this point, you can begin writing your questions and sending them to us. And uh, over to you, Dr. Kha. Yeah, Thank you, Shastriji. A very good question about uh, the connections that exist in uh, India's mainland between Kashmir and rest of India. And there are so many of them. In, in fact, the greatest Kashmiri scholar, Abhinav Gupta's, his own grandfather or great-grandfather came from Kannauj and settled in Kashmir. So there were people moving back and forth in all of India for centuries. And even though, you know, there were regions which uh, had uh, specific languages. Uh, so this is um, uh, one fact. The other is that uh, you also have uh, uh, connections in ideas that arose through Agamas. Before that, of course, you had Puranas, which are encyclopedias, and you had uh, the other uh, Tikas and Bhashyas on the Sutra and the uh, Upanishadic uh, literature uh, being created all over the country. But um, uh, certainly you had other texts also which were pan-Indic. And one of the greatest of them um, is uh, Yoga Vasishta, which again scholars believe arose in Kashmir. And Yoga Vasishta is the second largest book in Sanskrit next to Mahabharata with about 100,000 shlokas. You have Yoga Vasishta at about 29,000 shlokas. And then you have Ramayana at 24,000 shlokas. So Yoga Vasishta is the supreme book on Advaitic view of reality, narrated in terms of stories, uh, which many people consider a scripture in itself. But one can also view it as 
perhaps the greatest novel ever written. And through its stories, it communicates the most subtle ideas related not only to the external reality, but also the inner space that is within each one of us. Um, now, another uh, point before I forget, which I want to emphasize, uh, we, uh, we spoke about the 36 tattvas, uh, in which Shaiva um, Darshan uh, of Kashmir is different from Sankhya. Sankhya is 25 tattvas. Um, uh, we can see the antecedents of this in the Vedic literature itself. You have this great dialogue in Brihat Aranyak Upanishad between um, uh, Valkya and the student who comes to him and he says, how many gods are there? How many devas are there? And he says, 33. Uh, and then he says, what are these 33? And he says, uh, you know, you have eight vasus, you have 12 adityas, and you have 11 rudras. The 11 rudras, which the Vedic uh, sages speak about, are the 11 phases or aspects of consciousness in their veiling and in their expressive form. It's these 11 uh, rudras which were added on in their own unique way to the 25 tattvas of Sankhya, which give us the 36 tattvas of Shaiva Darshan or Kashmir Shaivism. So all along in history, as far back as you go, there is this amazing interplay and, and, and as Kashmir Shaivism as being a part of the general tantric world, the tantras themselves, even though they see uh, or it's viewed that they arose of the agamas, but tantric scholars themselves say, well, it's actually all goes back to the Vedas or you go to Shvetashvatar Upanishad where a similar classification is done. And really there is no distinction that Tantra or the Shaiva tradition is really no different. Uh, it's just emphasizing certain aspects of the same big Vedic river. So all connections, all throughout. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Kaki. Interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, we have questions um, pouring in. And the first question, and very interesting questions. Some of them are very interesting, but I'll, I'll go, we'll answer every question. The first question is for um, Dr. Ka, and this is from Shehjar Safaya from Raleigh, North Carolina. Thank you, Shehjar. And her question is, did the Kashmiri Hindu rulers have family relations with Hindu Shahi rulers of present day Afghanistan? And could you tell us more about the role of Lalita Ditya, King Lalita Ditya, in countering caliphate armies? So two questions. Uh, one, uh, do they have, do Kashmiri Hindu rulers have any relations with Hindu Shahi rulers of Afghanistan? And what was the role of Lalita Ditya in countering caliphate armies? Okay, quickly, uh, certainly they had uh, relations, they had uh, marital relations. In fact, the great Queen Vidda uh, was, I believe, a Shahi princess. Uh, so there was, uh, there were all these connections. Now, the, the great uh, Lalita Ditya of the Karkot dynasty, uh, historians accept that in his uh, campaigns to conquer the world as he saw it, he also had a campaign, he did a campaign to Central Asia, to Xinjiang, and he conquered that as well. This is when the Tang Empire had deepened. But as I mentioned in my opening remarks, uh, the Indics uh, as Buddhists uh, with, with a lot of... Uh, 
Um, Hindu divinity is also thrown in because you also see Shiva as one of the very important deities all over Central Asia for a long, long time. Uh, Shiva and Uma and Narayana and even Krishna. So you had uh, the whole Xinjiang as a, a cultural area where people use Indic languages, and there were also Shaka languages in Central Asia. And you had Buddhism, but you also had, had uh, what we would now call Hinduism or Sanatan Dharma or Shaivism, which were a part of the general cultural uh, river in those countries. And uh, certainly Lalitaditya's campaign to uh, Central Asia uh, must have been partly motivated by actual you know, desire to be connected to people who, in my own phrase, uh, was the twin of Kashmir, that Central Asia was a geographically or culturally twin of Kashmir. Okay. Thank you so much. And uh, the second question that I have is, um, Second, very interesting question, and this is for um, Virindraji. Uh, Virindraji, if you could unmute yourself. Um, this is from Amit Suchi in Melbourne, Australia. And his question is, did the white Huns, the nomadic people, Huns, the nomadic people who lived in Central Asia, did they, when they invaded Indian subcontinent, did they get influenced by uh, Kashmir Shaiva, Shaiva traditions? Because according to him, many of the Huns seem to be Shaivites by the time they reached Indian, Indian subcontinent. Actually, I have seen this on the on my WhatsApp also this message mm -hmm. because I have the literature of Kashmir Shaivism, the historical aspect. It is very important. Let us talk of Kumar Jiva, the fourth century, who was a whose father also was a uh, scholar of Agamas, and he was creator of you know what is called Lotus Sutra today, Shobhagai movement. And there are a lot of Shaivites that influence Buddhism, but that is a source of Mahayana Buddhism. And uh, white hunts, they're all uh, white hunt. Uh, that's the famous was Hune song. When he came to main India, he stayed for a couple of time, good time in Kashmir. And he had a great impact on the Kashmir Tantras, like Malini Tantra. This Krama system was very popular. It was uh, subtle and profound systems. They, he had a deep impact. This is what I understand. And of course, his purpose was to translate the Buddhist uh, scriptures into the uh, local language. He took the scriptures from India and to understand the Buddhist scriptures. And he found a, a different knowledge in Kashmir altogether. And definitely there was an, a good impact. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that answer. This is a very interesting question and I would like both of you to take it and uh, probably in just one sentence an answer can be given and I'll try to answer it myself as well because there can be multiple answers to this. Anna Solis, she's a journalist and she's asking if Kashmir is the crown of India, what is the jewel in the crown? Dr. Kark, you want to take this? If Kashmir is the crown of India, what is the jewel in the crown? Okay, oh, maybe the question is, what is it that makes Kashmiri or Kashmiri 
approach to civilization or culture unique? I think it is a special eye. It's an aesthetic eye. It's an ability to balance opposites. Uh, and that's what shows up uh, in literature, in uh, sculpture, in music, in a variety of fields that emerged out of Kashmir. It's really a sense of beauty. And uh, the whole discipline of Dhani, the aesthetic theory of Dhani, that it's not cleverness that uh, makes for the value of literature or a painting, because you can also be clever. You can try to impress somebody through your cleverness, but it's your ability to communicate something infinite and transcendent so that the viewer or the listener doesn't push back. If you try to teach somebody down, the person would push back. But if you indirectly communicate a, a, a resonance which inspired you and you're trying to get the viewer connected to the same resonance, that is when you have found the secret to uh, what is of beauty, what is beauty, what is uh, aesthetically valuable. I think it's that, uh, it's that eye which makes uh, the Kashmiri approach to culture and literature unique. I know. Um, I would interpret this question a little differently because you've uh, already answered it the right way, I would say. But if the question was, if Kashmir is the crown of India, then who is the jewel in that crown? I would say Abhinav Gupta, because I um, think at one point he was, the, to this day, I think he's Kashmir's greatest export to the rest of the world. So um, I would, it, it's just, as I said, there are no right answers to this, but um, quickly, uh, Virendraji, how would you answer that if I, Kashmir- I will agree with you. Abhinav Gupta is the jewel of Kashmir, the jewel of Abhinav Gupta. You would agree with that? Jewel uh, will be Abhinav Gupta, yes, yes, yes. You would agree with that. There's another question, and for this, I would go to Dr. Kark again. He says, and uh, this question is being asked by Vivek Gupta. The question is, how can we share this history of Kashmir that we have revealed today, that we've been talking about today, with the colonized people of present day Pakistan, especially Northern Pakistan, who are Muslims now? I don't know if the colonized is the right word to use in the correct context, but we get what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, how can we share this history of Kashmir with present day Pakistanis because um, a lot of them do not accept this history. They do not accept their own history. They do not accept that they have anything to do with the subcontinent. They think that on um, uh, 14th August 1947, uh, you know, a blood transfusion happened and they all got Arab blood for some reason. They do not even um, accept that they are from the subcontinent. But be as that may be, how would you think, what is the way if there were some people who were interested, how should we share this history of Kashmir with Pakistan? I think uh, it's the general challenge related to uh, how do you deal with the past? Because many places in the world have a problem with uh, their own history. And I suppose now we have technology, we have decentralized technology uh, of the internet, for example, and other media, which make it possible to present alternative 
and uh, true uh, narratives uh, to all people. And I believe uh, that every human being wants to know the truth. And if an attempt is made to present the truth in a non-threatening way, uh, people would come to it. And if, for example, uh, people were to know that uh, all of modern science is based on quantum mechanics, or from quantum mechanics you get chemistry, from chemistry you get biology, from biology you get brain science. And the creator of quantum mechanics, the Austrian named Erwin Schrodinger, himself was inspired, in his own autobiography he mentions it, he was inspired by Vedanta, by the Upanishadic Mahavakya, as he claims in his autobiography, I am Atman Brahma, that quantum mechanics is consistent with Vedanta. If people were to know it, perhaps they would become curious and would want to find out what is this Vedanta after all, or what is this Kashmir Shaivism, and maybe our ancestors were not all uh, you know, seized of darkness. Maybe there was something. So you've got to open some windows. And I think we should take the high road, present the story as, as often as we can, in as non-threatening a way as we can. And I'm sure eventually everybody loves beauty, everybody loves knowledge, every human being, even, even animals, you know, a dog wants to see a sunrise or a sunset. Every human, every sentient being wants beauty. So we have to keep on trying. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, the next question is for Virendraji. Um, uh, Virendraji, this is Damini from New Jersey. Her question is, what is the main differentiation in Kashmir Shaivism that makes it different from other Shaivite philosophies? Maybe one or two main differentiators. All this while you were telling us what is common between all of them, but what is the main differentiator? If you could give us one or two between Kashmir Shaivism and other uh, Shaivite philosophies in the rest of India. In fact, I described the uh, four broad categories of Shaivism. Let me talk of the main differences. Shaivism, Kashmir Shaivism based on totality. Everything is divine. Good is divine, bad is divine, everything is divine. In fact, there is a negative, no negative word. That's I would say, Maya is Shumai. Maya is Shumai. Maya is created by Lord Shiva himself to run the play of world. So it is not to be that uh, Jagat Mithya, no uh, Brahman Satya Jagat Mithya. No, Jagat is also Shiva and Brahman is also Shiva. So this uh, Kashmir Shaism speaks on totality. Second, that's why Kashmir Shaism we say is divine life and material life is but one. That is the first message. Second message is that we can realize the God in this very life and now a very simple process that from the relief of action, the relief of inner, uh, go inwards and connect to the divine. It's based on 100% divine grace. We can get transformed only by divine grace. So I'll say two things that uh, Maya is Shumai and second is Anugrah. It's only through Anugrah we can realize the God. That's the basic yeah, Anugrah is such a beautiful word because even in Kashmiri, we use the word Anugrah quite a bit. I mean, 
sisters here. And my grandmother would often tell me, uh, often use that word anugrah, and she would say, for anything I would do, for, if I would go out for an exam, if I would go out for to do anything, well, she would say that you need God's anugrah. So I guess she was getting it from um, what Virendraji said. Uh, Dr. Kark, you wanted to add something? Just briefly, um, just to uh, add uh, to what Virendraji mentioned, uh, the major difference is that uh, in uh, the Kashmiri view, this uh, embodied world is also an embodiment of the, the world. The actual world is also an embodiment of Shiva. And therefore, this is not to be taken as something that you want to run away from. In other words, Kashmir Shaivism is an approach, is a Vedantic approach, Advaitic Vedantic approach, where you can participate fully in the world as it is. You don't have to leave the world and become a sannyasi to find the deepest truths. They can find the deepest truths while living in the world. So I think this is the major distinction. I don't think it is a very deep distinction. It's a distinction uh, more of style, more in an attitude that look, uh, just as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, that you can't run away from karma. You can't run away from action. So you cannot, even if you went to the forest, you can't run away from it. So you better enjoy the beauty. The world itself is beautiful. It is an expression of the goddess and you can participate in it and be uh, also informed of the deepest insights by it. <coughs> Interesting. Um, I have another question from Vijay Kumar Dar. His question is, and Dr. Kark, since you're here, you may um, try to answer that. Um, it's a small, it's a uh, short, pithy question, but I don't know if the answer will be as short. The question is, do you believe that Kashmir will ever rediscover its ancient civilization? Oh, absolutely. I am a optimist. I think that the world over the next uh, few decades is going to change much more than all the changes that have occurred in the past few centuries, for a variety of reasons, partly uh, due to technology, AI, there are going to be tremendously disruptive forces at work. And uh, the coronavirus is just preparing you. And uh, this, of course, nobody was expecting. But there are other things that are going to happen. And in that disruption, during that disruption, people would then want to ask questions about meaning and who they are and want to be connected back to their history. And I think that will change. I think people all over, including people in Central Asia or in Pakistan or in Afghanistan and other countries, would want to revisit and embrace all the beautiful that was a part of their own history. And certainly not uh, and reject what was not beautiful, because every society has a mix of this and that. But I think all what we've been talking about is truly beautiful. It's beautiful not only at the regional level of Kashmir and India, it's beautiful at a universal level. And that's what almost everybody, uh, discerning people acknowledge that. I think people will want to and will get connected. Um, we have a lot of questions coming in. So we will have to keep our um, answers short so that we can um, take more questions. Uh, Virendraji, here is a question for you. Uh, the question is, Sharda Peet, as you know, um, 
had the presence of, and this is asked by Shashank Davangire, his question is, Sharda Peet, which evidently had scholars from all parts of South Asia, did it, it did that help in spread of Kashmir Shaivism across India, or was it more like exchange of ideas where the ideas from other parts of India also uh, influenced Kashmir Shaivism? So we've talked about how Kashmir Shaivism influenced other parts of, you know, Indic thought, but did the thoughts that were coming from other parts of South Asia also influence Kashmir Shaivism and change it? We'll have to keep our answer really short and uh, move on to other, if you could please. Actually, scholars would learn the great wisdom in Banaras. There was a learning center. From Banaras, they could go to Sharda Peet for subtle realization, for the higher sadhanas, not only of Kashmir Shaivism, uh, Agamas, even Buddhist scholars also were there. So it was an interaction. We can say it was a center of interaction also. And that's the Sharda Peet was called the highest learning because you will be taught practical sadhana in Sharda Peet. Yeah. So uh, the, uh, the next question, and I'll, since you're here, I'll ask you this quick question. It's from Shori Banai. He says, what are the remaining manifestations of Kashmir Shaivism in today? in today's valley. Are there any manifestations left? How do we practice Kashmir Shaivism today in um, Kashmir Valley? Now that we are not in Kashmir, but Kashmir it doesn't Valley. matter because, you know, I do interact with uh, who are these uh, practitioners in Kashmir Shaivism also. Mm -hmm. The great uh, practitioner Pranath Kohlji, I wish people take advantage of his, with his presence. Then Prabhaji is too old. And we, you can always practice Kashmir Shaivism. Everybody is very welcome to Kashmir Shaivism. We have to go, there are basic principles, which is announced by Shu Sutras. Shu Sutras gives you the guidance how to practice Kashmir Shaivism and Vigyana Bhaira meditation, Vigyana Bhaira Tantra. There are subtle techniques. Everything is available. You should only have a desire. Even but are there gurus available? Are there gurus available right now to teach Kashmir Shaivism right now? That was the question. Are there any gurus available? Guru, gurus, gurus within you. But of course, their number is very less now. Prabhaji also used to give Diksha. Yeah. And uh, Pranath there are people all over the world. They are coming in summer. If you see in Ishwar Ashram. Summer world, I don't know this year, maybe because of Corona people, there's no, not much of it. But summer people are coming to, they sit in the Ishwara Ashram also, they learn Kashmir Shaivism. It is growing, and it's growing day by day. I see a lot of these things. Yeah. By um, the way, you know, we also, we also teach the practical side. That, that okay. is also one thing, how you, we teach the practical, we call it level one program, level two, like that. We teach okay. basic scriptures, life and material life is one. Basically, we impart Tattva Gyan and Shu Sutra and Vigyan Bhairav. We can start with that. So anybody and, who's interested. Um, uh, another question, um, Dr. Kak, this question is, uh, I'll uh, put it to you. It says, it's a cheeky question. It says, we did not quite resolve the original question raised by Sunanda. How far in history do we go to claim a plot of land? Kashmir was Muslim dominated before 1947. Perhaps... Uh, since 1600s. What gives us the legitimacy to go back beyond 1600? I don't think he has the dates right, but um, his question is, what gives us the legitimacy to go to pre-Islamic period? Should we even go to it? 
Well, um, I, I don't know what that question really means, but uh, certainly Kashmir um, uh, has remained connected to uh, ups and downs of its history. There was a continuous, uh, um, you know, cycle of scholarship and manuscripts and scholars working on it. And um, even Kashmir Islam, the Rishi Islam, for example, uh, the Nanda Rishi, for example, one of the very leading lights, they were inspired by um, Maleshwari and Shaivism. So they were trying in the general public. In fact, one could say that politics in Kashmir, um, Islamic politics in Kashmir before 47 was an interplay of three groups. One was the general Islamic population, which remained connected to their own traditions, which had elements of their pre-Islamic past. And then there were the orthodox uh, mullahs in, uh, in, uh, in, in Srinagar. And then uh, there were uh, some people who wanted to be more uh, open and be leftist and so on. So there was an interplay. And perhaps this interplay would have resolved itself and found a healthy expression. But uh, sadly, Kashmir became uh, a prisoner to this uh, politics which was used by Pakistan to destabilize India, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s. And therefore, there were forces which were much bigger than that of Kashmir. For example, I can tell you, when I was growing up in Kashmir, Kashmir was the safest place anywhere one can imagine. Uh, I remember when I was a young kid in Kulgam, uh, I remember my father telling me one day that, look, in the last year, in the whole of the Kashmir Valley, there was just one murder. And there was also a murder of passion. But things have changed greatly because outside forces have come in, which have destabilized Kashmir, as outside forces have destabilized many other parts of the world. And maybe that is a part of this process of globalization. Uh, but now there are new forces at work, which I alluded to, alluded to in the beginning, uh, just a short while ago, that disruptive forces will perhaps turn the clock backwards and people would want to be connected to their own traditions in a more healthy way. And possibly that would be a resolution to this problem and answer to your question at the local level. Okay. Um, and maybe uh, Virindraji and you, between the two of you, um, one of you can decide uh, how to answer this and who can answer this. Can you, and quickly, can you share the contribution of Kashmir to Yuddha Tantra, war strategies? Is there any contribution of Kashmir to Yuddha Tantra or war strategies? Either of you can take that question. So, Bhaji, you start. Oh, well, Yuddha Tantra. Uh, <laughs> no, because I have seen from Andhra scholars, Andhra and other things. Uh, Dhanur Vidya and other things. I have attended some sessions. Well, uh, there obviously was a lot of theorizing and I personally am not knowledgeable, but these uh, uh, texts often speak in very general terms. Uh, and uh, then there were further um, commentaries on it, which is where they became of greater value. For example, as you know, there is this famous uh, episode in the Mahabharata of this Chakravyuhu where uh, Abhimanyu, I suppose, he goes in and he doesn't know how to get out. So there are all of these theorizing, but I personally am not knowledgeable about all of them. 
Okay. Um, and here is, and I'm going to ask both of you to give me two books because there the question is, please do suggest to us the writers we could read to understand more about history of Kashmir, for example, Abhinav book. So if you can give me two sources or two books that you recommend, Subhaji, and then Virendraji, if you can give me two books that you recommend, and then we can um, uh, move from that. What are, uh, if somebody is starting to read about history of Kashmir, what should they go back to primary sources? Well, there is, of course, Raj Tarangani, the, um, the big history book, which is written about a thousand years ago. But I would also recommend, and there are very good translations available, the Yoga Vasishta, because in my view, that is the greatest book, greatest novel ever written. I would recommend Yoga Vasishta. It is very eminently readable. And then people who are interested in Kashmir Shaivism, there are all these translations which were done by Jaidev Singh uh, for many uh, decades, published by Motilal Banarsidas, and I'm sure those books are still available. And there's a lot of stuff which is probably freely available on the internet. Yeah. Uh, Virendraji, two books that you I would will recommend two books. Of course, okay. is a wonderful book, History of Kashmir from Mahabharata Starts Ages. I would recommend two books. Number one the book is Abhinava Gupta by Dr. K.C. Pandey. It, is, it was out of print. I also requested them publishers, please publish it. It is now available. Chokamba Sanskrit Pratishtan. Abhinava Gupta's history. It gives a wonderful knowledge of Tantra in English language. We are lucky to read in English language about Kaula Tantra, Krama system, historical aspect. It gives a wonderful book, a thick book. And then for the guidance of Kashmir Shaivism. Very popular book from Swami Lakhmanju. Kashmir Shaivism, The Secret Supreme. These are all available books. Okay. Uh, Jaivism okay. learned with uh, Swami Lakhmanju. Now, luckily, we got direct books from Swami Lakhmanju. There are many books, Vijayan Bhairav, Shiv Sutra himself, from Lakhmanju. But these are very easy books. You will get great interest in Kashmir Shaivism by reading this book, Secret okay. So I, saw me, I, have, uh, I have time. I'm only going to be able to take two questions. And after this, I'm going to go to uh, Sri Harikiran uh, Vadlamaniji, who is with us here, and I'll introduce him in a bit. Um, so after two questions, I'll go to him. Uh, this is, um, uh, Swaji, if you can answer that, Teji Singh from India, America today. And she says she's an Orthodox Christian, FYI. We really don't need to know that, Teji. Um, uh, you know, that does not matter here. It's just a question. She is saying, Kashmiri Pandits came to ask help from ninth Sikh Guru, Teg Bahadur, um, for help so that they could stop Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb um, from converting them to Islam. Uh, the guru was tortured and beheaded, but it stopped that um, conversion. So Teji, I, I apologize, Teji is a he, I apologize, I uh, was not sure about that. Uh, so Teji is asking, uh, why no mention? I'm not sure where he wants a mention of this, but maybe he's saying that why are history books not why do they not talk about it's just a folklore but why do history books not talk about this incident i suppose this is the question uh so Vashi, if you could answer that okay the answer is um, depends upon what kind of a history book you go to um, often uh, comprehensive books do mention it but generally now uh, leftist historians don't want to talk about it because they say uh, incidents such as this 
represent a communalization of India's history. So we're going to leave this out because this pits one community against another. So I think it's uh, leftist historians who would eschew any discussion of it. But uh, older texts, and certainly Kashmiri scholars themselves who have written histories of their own community, do always mention it. Thank Just, you. Uh, I I wanted to add. Please, please go ahead. Please, please. Uh, on this, you know, the Kashmiri Pandit who accompanied Tej Bahadur and he joined Guru Gobind Singh and he gave Shahidi. He became the Sikh warrior and he died for the Sikh cause also. That I think that people are aware. It's very popularly known that. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that, Virendraji. Thank you for ah, letting yes, me know. I personally wasn't um, aware of that. Um, I will just take one more question because I have to go to Harikiranji after this. And this question is from Mohan Gatge, and um, it's a, um, I'm not quite sure what he means. He says, in what time period of history? The word is dilution. I'm not sure if that is the right word. The dilution of Kashmiri Hindus happened. And who is responsible, both religious and political leadership? I think what Mohanji is trying to say is that when did the dwindling of population happen? At one point, obviously, Kashmiri Hindus were about 100% about of the population. When did the dwindling happen and the kind of dwindling that has happened in Kashmir that a lot of people want to call it genocide because from 100% uh, to the time the seventh exodus happened in 1989, there were just five to 7% Kashmiri Hindus left. So um, I suppose if you can both answer, uh, Subhaji, you first, that when did this serious dwindling of numbers happen. It couldn't just be conversions. A may, not many of them must have been killed as well. And when did that happen? When was when was the time period? What was the time period that was that saw the most persecution of Kashmiri Hindus? Well, as you said, seventh, this is the seventh major episode. The yeah. very first major episode is supposed to have been Sikandar Butchakan. Butchakan meaning iconoclast. But from Bud because uh, when Central Asia and uh, Northwest India became Islamicized, uh, in many parts of that, uh, those regions were the Buddhists, and the Buddhists in their monasteries had big images of the Buddha. So the destruction of the images was called to destroy Buddhists. Buddh also means an image, therefore. So it was, I think, the grandson of the very first guy who seized power from the very last queen of Kashmir. Shamir. Yeah, and he did a general massacre or genocide. And according to popular belief, only 11 families were left. And when I was growing up, my uh, father and mother and grandparents used to tell me that the cocks were one of those 11 that we have survived. So I must also work as hard to survive in the decades ahead. Uh, but there have been other episodes like this. And, uh, you know, a community which is which has gone through a similar uh, history of the Yazidis in uh, northern Iraq, who claim to have gone undergone, I don't know, 20, 30, 50 such, uh, such episodes, including one very recently 
eight to 10 years ago. So, so a long period. Now, after the very first extremely serious episode, the son of that king was a fellow called Zanul Abdin, who was, uh, whose life was restored by his Hindu uh, Vadya. So after that, he became kind and he said, you can come back in. And a lot of people did stream back in, people who fled. Um, but, but, you know, the population remained very, very low and it was about five, 6% in 1990, but now it's almost gone to 0%. There are just a few thousand people left in the entire valley and there's also under tremendous pressure. Yeah, I um, uh, always, um, uh, you know, struggle with the word genocide when it is used for my people. And um, I, I, I get, I, I somehow don't want to use it. Um, I, and a lot of people do use it, but I don't know what more is a genocide than a population going from 100% to near 0% in the valley now. I don't know um, if, you know, a cultural genocide, a numerical genocide, but I, I just get very nervous about, I get goosebumps when I even talk about that word. Um, but we are running out short of time. And this is this last question that I'm going to, that we have covered already. And uh, so I'm just going to give her a brief answer myself. This is Ravali Rapaka. She says, what changed after the Muslim invasion in Kashmir? Ravali, the, what changed after Muslim invasion was seven exoduses of, um, uh, original aboriginal people of Kashmir, Kashmiri Hindus, Kashmiri pundits. So um, systematic persecution happened. And the, re the fact that we are talking here today and trying to reminisce who we are is the result of um, the Islamic invasion uh, in Kashmir. So a lot has happened. The character has changed. I think if there is anything that we need to take away from this conversation is that how can societies change when demographics are reduced? If there is one thing that we can go back and think about and in a very scholarly way that how, what happens to the societies when numbers are completely reduced like this over a period of 400, 500 years. As Hindus, we understand that time is cyclical and 400, 500 years means nothing. It is just you know, a cycle of time. But in 400, 500 years, here we all are talking about, even I don't know a lot of who I, you know, about who I am and I learned from these scholars today, um, but I can assure you that there are many of us who don't at all understand who we are, where we have come from, because we have been uprooted so much, um, seven times at least, and we are hopefully uh, hoping to go back never to be uprooted again. We don't know when that will happen. Um, but that, with that, I'll end this question answer session. We have already gone, uh, we have a lot of questions. And before this uh, started, we had already said, in fact, Subhashri had um, suggested this, and I would suggest this to the Indic Academy members, that this was a very broad overview of history of Kashmir and Kashmiri Hindus. So um, taking from it a few strands, what Virendraji and uh, Subhashri said today, we can maybe have a few more webinars if people are still interested and take a few specialized 
um, you know, topics and talk about those. And the idea today was to give you a broad overview and we can take it from here if the, and that is a suggestion from me to Indic Academy uh, members. Subhash, if you want to make a last comment, because we'll have to end in a little bit. Very brief comment on Hari Kiranji's first message on that book by William Sage uh, called Brahma's Curse. You know, this is all cherry picking. You can take one story and you can pick this and that. And people like William Slade would like nothing more than people getting worked up because any publicity is good publicity. If I were you, I would totally ignore this. Because I've seen other stuff by people, which is a very poor quality. Uh, certainly, uh, maybe one person can take a look, a hard look at it. But I wouldn't want to give it any publicity. In my mind. I think that would be and just be wrong I'm looking for uh, at least a, a rebuttal uh, kind of a thing. It, it looked very, very, I mean, when you read that, your blood boils saying that, look, how can you, somebody even, you know, have this kind of a perspective? Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Subhash Kakti, we, you know that they are at it. They're, they're, they're extraordinarily creative. They're very creative, innovative. I wrote an essay on it for medium.com called The Scandal of Indology. And you look at uh, some of the stuff which is so bad and there is a clear uh, ideological position that Indians cannot speak for themselves. It's we who shall speak for them. They don't have any authority to interpret their own books. I think the battle has been joined and I think this is a sideshow and probably we did not give any importance to it, but uh, the stakes are quite high. And, you know, there's this talk right now in the US, um, BLM, Black Lives Movement of white privilege. There's one area in the entire world where there is white privilege. It's Europeans and Americans telling Indians that you don't have the right to interpret your history. <laughs> You don't have the right to interpret what the Vedas are and what are the other texts are. And in that article, you'll see quotes by professors saying that we want to freeze out Indian scholars. So if that is what the situation is, I think we have to know what the uh, parameters of this battle are. And we have to now use Yuddha Tantra properly. We have to find out what these Yuddha Tantras are and find out how this battle should be fought. Yeah. Thank you so much, um, Subhaji. That is actually a positive note to end this on. And um, Vrindaji, thank you so much. You joined us from India. And I mean, this, is, this must be early morning for you. But thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us on um, so many interesting issues. I personally learned a lot today. Thank you so much. Uh, Subhaji, always a pleasure to listen to you. Always, it's, it's always enlightening. It's always, I always take away so much every time I read um, your writing or I hear you um, talk. It is always a pleasure. And uh, thank you to Indic Academy for giving us this opportunity to talk about ourselves. And if there is, and thank you to all the viewers and listeners and everyone who asked questions. I tried to put in as many questions as possible. I hope your questions were answered. Thank you so much for being with us today. And with this, I thank you all. Namaste. Namaskar.